from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am Tyler Jones. Uh, I am a comic writer for Revolt and also a contributing writer for Central Sauce. With me, I have Elliot Song, a content creator and contributor at Central Sauce. And we also have Joshima, who is artist management company, who, who, who's a founder of the artist management company Ode and musically at Brown Girl Magazine and podcaster here at Central Sauce. How you doing, guys? Good, how Lovely. are you? I'm doing great. I am doing just fine today. Um, Good. No pandemic blues in my head currently. <laughs> <laughs> Cherish this moment. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, real quick, we're going to do very quickly. Uh, what have we been listening to, guys? I mm. have been listening to, ironically enough, a lot of... Moses Sumney, which is the artist my piece is about, but uh, in the tail end of 2021, in December, he released a live performance album, and I'm obsessed with the track Bystanders in Space, and I've also been listening to a lot of Rum and Gold recently. Nice, nice. What about you, Elliot? I've been listening to a lot of New York hip-hop, um, because, because I should. Um, because everyone should, um, but Correct. you know, this, the pop smoke record, uh, yeah, the pop smoke record, what you know about love is like, it's going very hard for me, but I'm also listening to a bunch of Griselda records and, um, actually some, some Navy blue as well. I really, I'm, I'm a big, I'm becoming quite a big fan of his. Nice. Nice. I'm going to actually check out, check out Navy blue. I think that's the first time I've ever heard of, heard of them, like period he's yeah he, he's known somewhat his name is sage alcesser is his government name and he was uh he was known as somebody like he's always run with like earl sweatshirt and done a lot of like skateboarding stuff and then he started like a rap and production career uh in recent years but yeah the navy blue stuff is really good okay yeah i'll definitely be checking that out and i was listening to moses earlier because i've never listened to moses like that i would most it was really just pop up on my uh spotify but i did listen to a little bit of gray as i was reading the article and that is he's interesting he's interesting i'm been looking forward to um diving more into them um in terms of what i've been listening to i've also been listening to a lot of um 90s new york hip-hop um a lot of tribe some jay-z um a lot of a lot of wu-tang mostly because of that wu-tang show and then of course I uh, was recently listening to Dawn FM, uh, our another uh, co-host of ours, Mickey. Me and him have been talking about that. But with that mm -hmm. being said, let's get into our show. In this episode, we have a piece, um, article, um, an interview. But well, this in particular one is more of a inform uh, informative one. So, Elliot, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, so 
the sort of publication and, and article itself isn't so much of a deal. It's more just like a news bulletin, uh, some news. Uh, the Grammys this year have been postponed again um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is the second year in a row um, from the same pandemic, of course. And this one is obviously, you know, the, the second wave, the Omicron wave has been extremely disheartening. And it's really interesting to see institutional responses to that on a lot of levels. I think as a country, we've sort of realized that institutional responses to incredible crises is um, not exactly encouraging and that companies will value their bottom line over everything. But I also think that there's certain things that even they can't avoid. And I think that shows award shows and large concert events have been going on for months almost as if like the pandemic was like over right and we had this sort of this sort of almost embrace of this kind of future like okay well no it's not over over right but we're we're seeing things get better and things are opening up and if everybody's vaccinated and da 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 and then new variants just keep popping up and this latest one of course has been extremely extremely i almost said catchy i don't think that that's like the best word for it <laughs> uh it's not like a melodic thing but more of like a incredibly incredibly hard not to get so what what fascinates me is just that the grammys are in a really fascinating position in that from the top most popular artists to on a ground level, you know, general fans of music, less and less people seem to be willing to deal with the Grammys, willing to support the Grammys, or particularly interested in the Grammys. Um, I don't know um, if you guys, I was actually going to ask, like, whether you too are watchers of the Grammys. Do you watch the Grammys? And if so, why? If so, if not, then why not? Um, and from there, we can kind of talk about sort of what the Grammys mean right now really quickly and then discourse about the Grammys a bit and then move move forward. So, uh, yeah, Tyler, what do you watch the Grammys? <laughs> um, I do not watch the Grammys anymore. I haven't watched the Grammys, I think, in... Last time I watched the Grammys, I just remember it was Imagine Dragons and Kendrick doing a performance... Mm. which that is how I can't remember how long that was. I think that was during uh, the butterfly era um, era. So like maybe like 2015, 2016. Um, well, that was even earlier than that. That was a, uh, that was a good kid. Matt city era. Oh sh shit. Um, then, then, yeah, it's been <laughs> a very, very long time. Um, I, what I usually do now is cause when it comes, cause I've seen artists complain about the Grammys. Usually it's, they are bigger name and more veteran artists cause they've gotten to that level now where they just don't care. But I do see how younger artists might, I remember like even Lil Nas X saying at one point, like, yo, this was like a dream of mine. Um, BTS, um, who both me and Elliot are friends of like, they do have a certain like, glitz and glamour of the grammys and it's for younger artists or even artists who have never been through the whole shebang before they don't uh, they still have appreciation of it but i think audiences like ourselves and or maybe not you might you guys might disagree um i've kind of grown tired of it i feel like i've seen them get too many personally for me things wrong in hip-hop and r&b um 
putting things in categories that don't belong or just I'm like, they don't speak for us as a culture. So I don't, especially, especially as, a, like, as a black man, I, I don't see them speaking for me as much. Um, Joshua, what about you? Yeah, I can't, I, I would be hard pressed to tell you the last time I watched the Grammys. I generally, as, as the weeks leading up to it, we'll see who's in different categories, what different camps are doing in regards to the Grammys, um, the artists that are performing, etc. But I, I think I sit in this really strange place where I view the Grammy in phases like any cultural entity, whether it's a contest, an awards board, whatever it might be. But I think that there was a time where it was something worth attaining because of its high barrier to entry. And as we became more conscious and diverse as an industry, we realized that that's not really something to attain. It's something you're intentionally being kept out of. And so for a part of me, I entirely align with Tyler's sentiment of not feeling like the Grammys represents me, any of my peers, my colleagues, anything I consume, shouting out the world music category, that's absolute trash. <laughs> but I think the industry person in me is starting to see more and more of my peers and colleagues becoming voting members, becoming the the change makers potentially that we hope to see. But then I catch myself in a cyclical thought cycle, wondering if it's valuable to change something that in its creation is problematic or it's better to build anew or if things of that nature matter. And to some degree, I think when we're talking about music that transcends many generations, a younger generation might feel like they don't need a metric measuring bar outside of their discovery metrics to rank musicians because it's never going to be comprehensive enough for the whole world, right? Um, and others might feel like, no, but there should be something that says tastemakers get to aggregate all these different forms of data and say what that is. So uh, I don't know if this is a non-answer, but yeah, I haven't watched the Grammys recently. I feel like it's a little bit trash, but I also feel like there's people that are trying to make it better. And is that worth it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation of whether or not reform is better uh, whether or not reform is something to want. I think there's always going to be a large amount of sentiment, even though there are more and more people who are tuned out, where even so, every now and then, when one of these large institutional award shows and institutions in general award someone that we want to win, that we feel a bit of excitement, right? And I think, it, I, I always think back to the Parasite winning the winning the Oscar for best picture and the, the shock of that moment and what does this mean and how everybody was so excited for everybody involved in that film. And there are moments like that with the Grammys from time to time. But at the same time, I do think that while there is a necessity to some degree for events like these, you know, performances like classic award show performances, if there's a gap, you know, that, that really needs to be filled. It, it was always a place where, whether it was the Grammys or the VMAs in recent years and other ones, that s these performers, these greats of our time or even of past times or of the future would go on stage and then do something really crazy with this amazing budget and everybody would talk about, oh my God, did you see that Kendrick performance? Did you see what Madonna did, what Lady Gaga did, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we don't have that, right? We, we, we get less and less performances in, in general with COVID. Um, but we don't have these spaces anymore where there's like everybody coming together <laughs> in a way and like sort of being in awe or being in like excited and energized by some idea of like the biggest and best. And I think the Grammys are continuing to lose the plot by not even reforming properly. It seemed like for a period of time that they might have wanted to. And then there was a, a fallout with the new person in charge who left and, and levied a lot of allegations of sexual harassment and bias and bigotry. And now, you know, if this past nomination ceremony, which I was even tuned out of, um, apparently there was a lot of controversy about that and there's always controversy but this was like the kind of controversy that like you don't want like a lot of sexual harassers getting award nominations and apparently drake rescinding his nominations like he was nominated twice and then literally was like actually i don't want to be and was like i i can't even imagine where the grammys go from here if they don't do something revolutionary and i think the, the particular news of them you know postponing again with covid it strikes me for some reason because it feels like the COVID, um, the, the pandemic that may go on for much longer than just this year is accelerating a lot of things that were already problems, uh, is accelerating um, institutional decay because it's exposing just how pointless and rotten a lot of these institutions and a lot of their actions are. And what point, at what point do we see that finally turn into a huge change or does it just mean that these things just sort of deteriorate but we don't really see any new change we don't see any new award ceremony we don't see anything except a decay sort of overall of like these these institutions and, and, and these sort of social mores these these things that we used to all circle around and, and hold with importance so yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's it's <laughs> I say the word interesting a lot. Um, but I I I guess what I'll what I'll say in closing and sort of pose to you guys is like are there large things in in music anymore that people are coming together for? Um, what is the the gr big Grammy award night or uh, you know, New Year's Eve is another thing. I remember New Year's Eve being a big thing of all the performances that night. We don't have that really anymore either. Um, is there any replacement for that? And, and should there be? I don't think I look at it as, am I going to garner the same sentiment as once was, right? Like there's something about going to a concert or a festival and being in community with listeners and being able to be like sweating at a rock concert next to someone else or belting out lyrics or tearing because you're seeing a band that you really love. And I don't know that that's gone. I think it's just changing. And that was hard for me for a little while, but now I see it all the time with different artists we work with. And maybe there's going to be a Discord Awards for music. Maybe there's going to be different platforms that do different things. Maybe Twitch will release the Top Streamer Awards, right? And I think that surely by hopefully these awards being powered by entities that are digital, we can increase accessibility. My biggest bone with the Grammys is I think we will edit this if I am wrong, but I, I think that the Grammy started in 1959 or that was when the first show was. And 
it's 2021 and we have the Latin Grammys and the Grammys. And so if they really wanted to be inclusive and diverse, I feel like more progress would have been made and there hasn't been any. So maybe generations that have started in their incubation and infancy being exceptionally diverse are where the future will live of these sort of same community gatherings and things to look forward to. I will say it's actually 2022. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit. Um, you know. So, so you're even you're even more correct. So yeah, it's but yeah, we're even further into the future. Um, in terms of things that are like big cultural significant things that we all come together for, um, I feel like it's kind of like broken off. I feel like it, but in a good way. It's like whatever you you are into, you kind of have that moment for it. Like, I think whenever a certain album drops people are doing album listenings over twitch twitter everyone's live reacting to something i think those are the closest things we're getting to a big community thing now like um like even it's like regardless of what the reaction was just like as i was mentioned earlier like the weekend just dropped um uh, that uh, everyone was talking about that on the timeline and live time whether you even though i'm old now and i can't stay up to till i pass midnight anymore (laughs) um even as charlie uh typed in the collective and brilliant like chef's kiss like brilliant hate of the double xl freshman list that is another one that is hilarious but we're all into it at the time um (laughs) so i think we have moments maybe not necessarily in award shows because like they still get like their thousands of ratings for whoever like do care obviously but maybe as a culture maybe we do like bring back the source awards or an equivalent of it um maybe there is like a world music awards maybe there's maybe there's something or just like as people once again learning as learning as these institutions don't really give a damn about anybody except for like themselves and their pockets or like who pays them the most for their advertising and or a label that pushes them maybe we as a people just like collectively like yo we have what we like we are discussing it amongst ourselves and this is what we think um mm. instead of like letting a association or an academy in this case dictate what is good or not because i because i once again i do i do understand like that sense of pride of like having your favorite thing win and another oscar thing moonlight when moonlight won instead of la la land that was oh god it made my heart so warm but for now i think people really dictate what is what we think is good and then even those differ so yeah I don't know about you, but I'm down for the Central Sauce Emerging Artists Awards in 2023. I would love that. I would love that. I think I think just in general, even just having events and congregation of things is is, is good. And whether or not there's a necessity for there to be a, a first place, like a gold medal winner, and, and have these large grand categories for those winners at that, oh, this is the best song of the year. You know, like what, what an audacious thing, right? But whether or not those things are needed to have people in places, and I do think that there's a you know a physical element that that is obviously missing that is needed. But even still, what social media offers, I think that that is a good thing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that being a good thing, and a lot of discourse about that. But I think overall, maybe it's a social revolution more than anything. Like. When I hear Tyler say these things, uh, that 
maybe we're just we just don't care so much about the institutional approval anymore and maybe we're more interested in what we're saying you know uh whoever we are um <laughs> should we uh move on then uh yeah and that was the 2022 grammys postponed due to omicron wave by justin curto or vulture Um, the next piece we have is actually my piece. Um, it is Ari Lennox and Summer Walker, The Yin and Yang of R&B by Robin Mowat for OK Player. Um, I was really in- interested in this uh, article because I was when I was searching, trying to find something to like, uh, like t- for us to talk about, I was like... I was like the yin. This that title alone got like really stuck out to me. Like the yin and yang of R and B. Um, now, because when I think of yin and yang of R and B, at at least of especially the women's voices in R and B. While I do appreciate those artists a lot, I was like yin and yang. I don't know, like the yin and yang. I don't. What are you talking about here? So, what Robin does really, really well to me is. One, she tries to like start defining why they're different, but how those differences are together, like how yin and yang balance each other out. Um, and something she did throughout the article is like she started off with summer. Well, for, well, she started off with them together, and then they start. She she broke it down to summer first, and she has almost a more modern sound, which to me made really made a lot of sense in the structuring of the article, and then. With each of their sections, she makes sure she almost like sees how like that sonic wave is affecting and like, almost like not to say they're, they're children, but like people who are being influenced by them in real time. Um, and even like putting their equivalents for like um, the Arnie Lennox section, she said like, how Baby Rose has that same feel and like how that uh, is affecting R&B. But then towards the end of the article, she really displays like what. The, what really makes them stand apart and what makes them the yin and yang is like the fact that they are so candid and so vulnerable in their music and how and why that almost sets them apart and something that she didn't say but i kind of like it's you can it moves outside of their music is like how how vocal both of them are in their social media as well like they are two artists that if something happens to them, we know about it in real time. Once again, it's it's it lives and breathes through their music as well. How like they're very candid, and how these two women, while they while our 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 links has more like a retro seventies eighties R and B feel like that's underlying to her music, especially like her vocal, um, and Summer's more modern take. How they still come back together, and how you can probably put them on the same playlist. And it makes sense. Um, but yeah, so real quick, Joshua, what did you think of the article and what on uh, Robin's words? I actually really, really loved this. And I think the main reason that I loved this is I think when written about Gen Z and millennial consumers or listeners are often described as being or are deprived of being described as having real sonic influences or preferences 
people focus so heavily on their distaste or appreciation for discovery methods like a TikTok or Sync or different platforms, right? But nobody really talks about why the music on those platforms or what's currently appealing is appealing. They focus on the fact that it's short form. So I think in one of her lines, she said something to the effect of, Gen Z appreciating lyrical ballads and trap beats and really describes that in both of their sonic styles. And that for me was big because I think that there doesn't have to be this generational divide and that people listening to this music aren't robots. They do have a consumption preference. We do care about what a song sounds like, what production elements are in it, how lyrics are being presented and written and who's doing that work. So that I really, really, really enjoyed. I also loved how she talked about how they talked about how Ari and Summer use different elements. And for me, the thing I love most about their music and a lot of what's happening in R&B right now is I feel like my itch for nostalgia and something that feels familiar is being scratched, but I don't feel like I have to ruminate in it with their music. For me, it feels very progressive in a way where I'm being comforted and nurtured as a listener, but I'm excited for what they're about to show me. I don't feel the need to go back to something else to feel safe, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. Yeah, I thought that was really um, a captivating analysis you've made there because I think, for one, there's just so much to say in terms of like sound of a time period. Um, I did also find it quite interesting how um, how Robin talks about the sound, right, and talks about the trap beat and the R&B stylings. And I think that there's a general theme with this piece that I I find sort of in the idea of authenticity. And it's authenticity and, and honesty are the things that sort of everyone is obsessed over in our generation, I think. It's this idea that comes up over and over again and is hotly debated and what's honest and what's dishonest. And I think that there's a lot to talk about when it comes to what honesty means sonically. There's, you know, you can you can be honest, although there's discourse about, you know, what this is too, but you, you can be pretty simply honest when you're telling a story because you could either tell the story truthfully or falsely you could say something happened to you you know in this in the seventh grade or what you can talk about a relationship that you actually had and and moments that actually happened and that's very straightforward just honesty right yeah you know my my ex was mean was 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 well, was mean to me. My ex was 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 uh, incredibly toxic, or my ex was really great, and I missed them. And then that's your truth, right? That's very honest. But that's also the the definition of honesty that we sort of think about most evenly. But I don't think we we talk the more about what honesty is in terms of choosing sound. I think when it comes to like an idea of nostalgia, I think a lot of times you have artists that sort of mine for nostalgic feelings to sort of carry the idea of the music. And I think Joshua was was hitting on that. You know, you have certain artists, some people would argue Bruno Mars is one of these artists. I wouldn't necessarily argue that. But you have certain artists that they'll do a song that sounds retro, and then that's the whole point. It's that it's a retro song. Oh, this sounds like 70s funky music. Great. Um, And then from there, what do you really pull from the song other than like, oh, I like the sound of music. It reminds me of this. Whereas 
when that music was coming out, what was the intentionality behind it? I mean, aside from the fact that a lot of these 70s funk artists, I remember Questlove talking about like a lot of musical choices Michael Jackson used to make in the beginning of his career and how revolutionary those were at the time. You know, to sort of reduce them narrowly, as some artists might, into, oh, we're going back to that sound instead of sort of being progressive about it is, is kind of, it's a part of life, but it's also, you know, it leads to a kind of a trashiness, right? It's like, oh, we're going to try to emulate something that already exists for a very easy sort of applause. And then that's not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of times that gets very easily capitalized upon, right? It's very easy to, to, to capitalize on the nostalgia of people. But I think that there's a, a more sincere and a more real way to capture authenticity and nostalgia. I think when you listen to the choices that Summer Walker and Ari Lennox make in their music, they're, they're, they're not just making these nostalgic musical choices. Um, like Joshua says, they're, they're taking things that I would say, you know, influence them, stuff that they listened to growing up, stuff that, you know, a generation of people either in a certain area or even globally listened to, things that people felt at that time, all those things that were brought into that music nostalgically um, were actual were based on things that a person authentically thinks about and feels like these are the, this is the kind of thing that's in your DNA so to speak is like this is this is the kind of music that I grew up on right and so when somebody uses that and then goes through you know uses that form to sort of explore something that's present and something that's honest in themselves with the lyrics and interrogate their own insecurities, their own relationships, as Summer Walker does so well. I think that's what really speaks to people so much and, and speaks to people about a lot of the newer R&B artists. Is that not just that they remind you of old singers and old songs, but that they take a, an experience. They, they sort of speak on their own experience, and it's, a, it's an experience that you can connect to a lot. And, you know, people talk about this idea of being relatable, too. And I think relatability is something that so many people try to, like, capitalize on. You know, you know everybody wants to be hashtag relatable, right? Every company wants to be, like, doing the Spotify thing of, like, wow, like, last year was totally lit, right? That whole just trying <laughs> oh, to God, sound like people, right? So that whole, uh, like every single thing that, that was in that Spotify wrapped, it's just like this, this summation of how companies are just like trying to be relatable, trying to say what the kids say and feel how the kids feel. You are in your feels this year, right? But that's so easy to see through. And I think with artists like Ari and, and Summer, they're, they're so successful because people don't, whether they like the music or not, get that sense of complete like cynical dishonesty from them it's literally it's them and whether you like them or you don't like them um, or you like aspects and dislike other aspects it's like we're working from a place of like you're channeling the things that are real to you and uh, it's really hard artists struggle with that all the time because there's so many gray areas right i mean we're talking about yin and yang but like there's so many places where you could be trying to be honest and then not realize that you're not being so honest there's so many places where you can try to make a musical choice that you think reflects your experience well but it doesn't come off tasteful right there's so many ways to mess that up but they very rarely do 
I don't think there's ever been a point where I've heard people be like, wow, Summer Walker, like her music was like super, like that was just super corny. Like there was nothing there, right? There's always something there. So when it comes to, you know, R&B, and I have, you know, I was thinking a lot about like gender when I was reading this article too, because there's a whole discussion to be had about like the sort of male coding of like, popular r&b and how people are always looking for like the king of r&b and (laughs) now there's always discourse about that and meanwhile like consistently it's women and non-binary folk that are making the most intriguing and most relevant r&b music and people are still saying you know r&b is in this sort of downfall or in this down period because there's not enough good dudes at it apparently like there's that kind of like I, I feel like there's an angle there and then there's also this this discourse there to be had but i think um when you look at these two women it's like this is exactly the kind of um this this article kind of summates exactly why they are so relevant they're, they're, they're coming from this very authentic point of expressing themselves and they have a lot of talent too they have just a lot of natural like undeniable vocal talent musical talent so it works on so many levels like that and um yeah i don't know i think i don't know if i could touch if i touched on that the other aspects so well but i'm curious to hear like for you guys if you feel like um when you think about these discourses about like what the state of R&B in like 2022 like do you have personal feelings on that have you ever bought into that like sort of R&B is in a decline thing and like to what extent um you know Joshma I would love to hear from you again on that uh, maybe on that yeah um I, I I think so much of what you said deserves its own podcast but uh Charlie Charlie <laughs> in the chat just said give women the keys and you know that I'm all about that but I don't actually feel like now, I understand that what I'm about to say is a nuanced take, and I'll try to be as concise as I can in the time that we have, but I don't know that R&B declined if you were always a consumer of it. I think that R&B's mm. ratings and institutional recognition of R&B declined, right? Mm. Much as any genre is floating globally in different ways. It, has Afrobeats never been around before today? Hell no, that's not true. Like, how many people have been making that music for how long, right? It's just when did it become global and when did mainstream start giving it this validation that arguably our generation and the next generation are saying they don't know if they need or not. Um, but I think that something I think about a lot in terms of the role of nostalgia and classics in R&B is I sometimes think nostalgia and R&B haters or nostalgia and R&B lovers are like people who hate participation trophies giving out participation trophies. I don't think the commentary is really as valid as people make it. I think that everybody knows there's insurmountable merit and value to R&B singers, producers, writers. It's one of the genres that lends itself so well to understanding the complexities of someone's vocals, where they sing from, their historical and geographical beginnings, right? And so I don't know that I agree that R&B ever had a pause. Do I think it had a period of less global recognition? Absolutely. I also think the segmentation of women in R&B is something that we should have a podcast on looking at you, Tyler. Um, because, mm. you know, the other day I was on the phone with someone who was chatting to me about the Brandy versus Monica 
versus battle in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic that kind of reignited. And when you look that up, there's countless articles and commentary on that, right? But women are frequently in R&B, especially in R&B journalism, presented in context of one another. And I would really like to see the next generation of writers be able to give them fair journalistic integrity and play as whole independent artists with discographies and journeys that deserve to be explored in the same capacity and not constantly have them in context of each other or in competition with each other. There's room for that. I just don't think it should take up as much real estate as it does. I don't think I actually answered your question, but... No, that's okay. I mean, what I before Tyler goes, I want to jump in and just say, like, I think much of what I think caused this sort of deglobalization, I guess, or decentralization of like R&B, because we all, you know, recognize like mid 2000s, the early 2010s, like R&B was, was very much like the, the pop, right? Like, when we think about artists like Usher, that rain, that he had when we think about um earlier beyonce records and destiny's child like these were the biggest music acts and they were considered r&b acts and i think you know what happens with a lot of sort of what we might consider subgenres, although whether or not r&b is really a subgenre or just like an interesting and sometimes coded term um i think that what happens is these artists are super popular these songs are the biggest songs and it's seen as the wave and so more and more investment is made to try to capitalize on that wave and the more that that happens the less people are attracted to it um similar to like what happened to soundcloud rap recently in a much smaller scale because r&b and soundcloud rap are like two very different things but any sort of movement same thing happened with reggaeton for a period of time before there was a comeback in that sense and a new generation, these musical movements find the mainstream eye because of how real they are, because of how gripping they are, how talented the artists are. And then more and more people try to, to emulate that. More and more labels are like, we need the next Usher, right? We need the next Neo. And people get very, people catch on to that. People get used to the, the copy and paste and move away. And they move towards some. They try to move towards sounds and ideas that almost fly in the face of that, but much less are just like different from that. And so I think what affected R and B and its popularity is that that idea of like less and less authentic and like compelling art came from that world because it became so capitalized upon, you know. Um, but Tyler, sorry. Uh, what were your thoughts in general on, 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 on those things we were talking about? Um, that was a lot. So, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, I, I, I would say it's, it's a, there's a lot of things to it. Um, R and B is more than it, more than a subgenre. It's, it, it's just like hip hop culture. There is R and B culture as well. Um, they it, it and yet it has gone through many evolutions you could say in like early 2000s you had um the neo soul like late 90s or early 2000s to mid 2000s you had the early neo soul like with music soul child um and the re um flowetry all of them and then like maybe the mid to um once again early mid to like later 2000s you had the pop r&b hits um with with the ushers with the neos with um 
um, continual reign of Beyonce. And you could argue that like popular music, maybe in the 2011 eras, uh, 2011 to 2013, which is like my least favorite, like in main and mainstream music. That's when everything went a little too EDM for me. <laughs> but you could say th those, you could argue like, yes, the sound moved towards that. And you probably didn't hear as much, um, quote unquote quality r&b in the mainstream but it, once again to joshua's point it was always there if you were a fan of r&b you always heard it you you found it um you made sure that it was thriving and it was alive because it always was um and it always will be um it's like any good music you have to like find it right um it'll just bubble up to the surface um but once again to almost to end on oh go ahead I have a question for you, if you don't mind. I think when we discuss this, we're always discussing it from an industry and artist standpoint, but we're not discussing like the listeners and audience, which I think we all are of that. So R&B being something that we all consumed, I think we also like, and I, and I would love to hear how you feel about this, but accessibility to a genre also used to carry an onus for the listeners to spearhead that genre forever, right? So you couldn't, it's like having a friend who's a rapper. You might think that they're an incredible rapper, but maybe you need space from their sound or you want to listen to something new, but they're so small that if you stop supporting them, their discoverability reduces, right? And so I think sometimes it's nice to have context that, just because listeners are listening to something else for a minute doesn't mean that they're still not fans of something or that they don't want to come back to it or see it grow. It's also not the same issue because now discoverability is exceptionally different and much more accessible than the R&B people are often referring to as quality or classic, whatever that means. It was just less accessible. Yeah, I, I you there. that is a... It has a point as well, um, because once again, it's like if like if you haven't like Kendrick hasn't like, we're gonna use an example. Kendrick hasn't dropped in four or five years, right? It's, about, it's hitting year five. Me and Mickey are tired, um, <laughs> but um, it doesn't mean people aren't. And, I'm, and he, yeah, sure, he's a big name, so I'm using him as, a, as an example. But like, it doesn't mean people have stopped being interested in his music. People are matter of fact anticipating it for it. But of course, during that time period while he's been off, they found other things to listen to other artists there have been, there's been a vacuum other artists have come in and made their names known whether it's little baby or even um travis scott to a certain degree um even though he's in the doghouse um but you know just in that vacuum people listen to something else or people just get simply get interested in something else for a while um listeners can be fickle but it doesn't mean listeners don't care anymore um entirely um and in in R and B as a very emotionally driven genre, you could say, um, especially with vocal performance, um, people love that. P P um, R and B listeners love that they can go to different parts of R and B because while we're discussing the yin and yang and like this um, and these two sounds in particular and these two voices, there's so much in the gray area there. Um, as we're about to move to another <laughs> to our next. Uh, article soon but like there's so much gray area in there as well where listeners have this like there's there are the two dots and the um and two sides of the yin and yang there are many of artists that are in that in between so that is my article 
Ari Lennox and Summer Walker, The Yin and Yang of R&B by Robin Mowat. With that being said, we go into our last piece brought to us by Joshima. Uh, take us away. Awesome, thanks. Um, so <laughs> I have the biggest journalistic crush on Rawia Kamir. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. I feel about their writing the way Adele talks about music in her recent interviews. I feel like Rawia writes for my inner generation or my inner person. Um, so this article actually is from 2020, and typically we don't really do older articles on the podcast, but I thought a lot about the fact that I wanted to bring something from the past that I would like to continue in the future, because I think we often talk about the past in a negative light, and not all things that have occurred are bad. So I would love to see more pieces like this, more journalists like them, um, yeah. And the name of the piece is Moses Sumney is Ready to Claim His Spotlight, so the way that Rabia writes is incredible, but the thing I love most and feels to me like the written articulation of the sentiment of R&B is their ability to create vivid, specific imagery with words. I, I think they do an incredible point. So one of the excerpts I loved most was, when Moses Sumney laughs, it feels like the entire room expands, rearranging itself to make space. Aside from a pair of plush slippers the color of a graham cracker, Moses is wearing, as he interminably does, only black. A black t-shirt with gaping voids where there should be sleeves, a black kimono-style wrap, black tapered sweatpants that, even with a tiny hole in the knee, look impossibly chic. On two shoe racks by the front door, I count 15 pairs of black boots, along with half a dozen other black non-boot options. Um... So I think that they, they're an incredible writer. But also, I'll get into this a little bit later after hearing both of your thoughts on the way the piece was written and Moses himself. But I think that I love the time she takes describing an artist's space where they create and the home of art feels neglected in most stories for me. The care that goes into turning a space into a sonic haven is really important for me because I think contrary to what we were just discussing, it is relatable um, and, it, and it feels like it matters. So I'm curious what both of you thought of the piece. I know it's long. Um, what you enjoyed about their writing style specifically. Um, I, would I would like to say like this was such a great profile and story for me because like one, I was not familiar with, um, um, with her work at all. Uh, I don't think I've ever read anything from her. And also, I was unfamiliar with Moses. Um, like I was saying earlier, it's like um, I've maybe only, only heard maybe some songs here and there um, by them. But it was a delight to learn so much more. And something that I, I know she had to do intentionally, she had to do it intentionally, um, was that since the album was called Grey... And 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 Moses was himself has been a figure that's always been about. Um, it seems to be opposites. It seems he. Oh, excuse me. She wrote everything where it's like two sides of it. Where like and as you're reading, you're finding the gray in between line of him. Um, like like that little section where she goes off and Moses somebody could have been a pop star. 
but he did but he didn't and then it goes into like what he's actually doing and like you're really reading in between those um those paragraphs even the lines to find oh she's painting this full portrait of him um also can i say that the first line that you had the first line of the actual article moses sumney's titties are bouncing a little too much for his liking and that was the way you decided to start off i'm gonna jump with it i thought one it was kind of hilarious it was like funny but also it's like giving once again delving into his mind because i was like something that he was talking about and saying like oh no the t- my, maybe the titties are actually okay and i was like just i was like wow <laughs> i was like that's, this is gonna be a fun read and it not only was it fun it was informative and i really got to get a full paint uh excuse me portrait of moses um but what and what about you elliot how, how would you find the article yeah, it's it's an incredibly well-written piece, I think. One of the things that a great feature of an artist or on anything does is show you how much happens to lead to a person being who they are and to lead to the, a moment in a person's life. So we can usually talk about celebrities and like where they came from when they broke out when they had a scandal when they you know and sort of get through the the basic bits and then talk about what they want to do and then and then you're good and and that's just generally like most pieces right like most that's most interviews is here's some background here's what they're doing now here's how they feel and what they want to do in the future and I think a really well-written article finds so many things to stop and think about. A really incredibly well-written nonfiction piece, a, a feature, can take something that's like as, as simple to explain as like, so Moses Subney's a singer, and they used to be in journalism, did some stuff. They were in Accra, they were shy, and then they became an indie singer. You know, there's like there's a pretty straightforward way to do this, right? And if you don't actually read the piece, you don't take away the sort of magic from it, which is that like every paragraph or every part of the piece has something that you might think about for a while. For me, it was, for one, the uh, the description of Moses's experience in Accra. Um, as a person who had an experience of having to move from the U.S., um, to the home of the original home of my immigrant parents for some period of time in youth. I've had that experience too. You know, there was a connectivity that I felt there, of course, but there was also very quickly and yet very sharply an articulation of the kinds of things that caused Moses to become very withdrawn and very shy and and quite insecure about some things that leads to us understanding Moses returning to the U.S. and then constructing this new self, right? Saying, I'm going to dress different, I'm going to be artsy, I'm going to do all these things. And then leads us to, to sort of understand now this person who, at the beginning, we might feel is like a bit uh, out of tune, like is a bit like like one the kind of person that's pretty well off and very artsy and maybe thinks very highly of themselves we kind of understand like oh moses comes to this point 
as an, a new form of expression of self that for a period of time they may have been struggling with. And they've sort of emerged, not just in confidence, but in exploring all these different things about them that is a really magical part of life. And it's a magical part of artistry, right? It's like when you grow up, you have these different challenges, usually to do with your, your insecurities and confidence and not being sure of yourself. And over time, you think about this phase that you went through and this thing that you did with your hair and this thing that you were listening to and these people you were friends with and this person you dated. And then you get to a point where now you're 18 and then now you're 22 and now you're 26. And it's like all, all these things, all these pieces of me from like the things that I like to eat in the morning or the, the way that my bathroom is set up or the kind of color of clothes I like to wear or the things that I thought about being but I couldn't quite be or didn't want to quite be, that all shows this just there's just multiple worlds in every person. And so what I really found remarkable was this ability from Kamir to describe all these different worlds and all these different moments is to say you know when when you use adjectives like you can you can easily be very purple um and your prose and just be like you know three adjectives per ver per noun three adverbs per verb make it sound fancy and then you have a paragraph and uh, you know a lot of writers we we go through doing that sometimes but if you think about like the description of the 15 pairs of black boots and the non-boot options and you think about the description of the house, the constant descriptions of like Asheville and what Moses sees in it. Um, and you think about all the different descriptive verbs like graham cracker color, right? It's like, oh, there's there's like a feeling of like childishness that's being imported in that word choice. There's an understanding of like different histories that are being... So yeah, um, that's the kind of careful thing that probably wasn't even such a... Like some of it isn't necessarily going to be so deliberate of like I'm thinking about every word that I choose in a piece for a writer that is this good but it has that effect where you look on it and you're like whoa like there's so much to unpack and everything and uh, I think that's the kind of thing that makes you not only want to read a piece again but like want to talk about it with other people you know yeah I think both of you brought up elements of the piece that I love immensely a lot and I think a lot of content today is asking us is asking artists how they live to get ready with me to film morning routines to talk about their childhood comfort foods and their first crushes in an effort to relate to them. But I think very rarely do we just observe them because being let into a space where they have to be vulnerable enough to let us observe is hard because we live in a time where often observation of vulnerability leads to being eliminated, not being documented. And we don't often observe and allow for someone's humanity and their feelings. And I say this a lot, but feelings in the process are enough for me when I'm consuming content or art. I don't need, I don't feel the need to leave with a goal or opinion on Moses that's finite. I want it to change. I want my consumption of his music to change. I want my feelings when I hear that music to change. And I think that Rabia's writing feels comforting in a time where we're so eager to consume to come to a conclusion. And I don't want to consume to come to a conclusion. I want to consume because in the words of Charlie in the chat, that album is a fucking trip. 
And this is Rabia's observation of someone who made an album that is a fucking trip in their environment and what that means. And I think the word count dedicated to giving space about his upbringing and influences, sometimes I feel really far from musicians despite the amount of content that they're putting out because I feel like sometimes content creation is designed to sympathize and entertain, not empathize and understand. And hearing that Moses and I both watched Boy Meets World or Sabrina the Teenage Witch and want to read about feminist theories matters not because I'm trying to relate to him or find sameness, but because maybe our frames of reference, despite how different we are, could cross. But maybe we consumed those things and left with different feelings about them. And, and that feels cool. It feels like I understand a little bit of his process or could observe a little bit of his process through Robbie's writing. So... That was that was something I really 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 loved. Um, yeah, it's yeah. like before. Sorry to cut you off before we go. Like, it's like there's so much. I, I've always been so much more interested in like hearing an artist sit down and just talk about how they made a song for like ten minutes, right? Instead of like, oh, this is my story. This is this is and that, right? And I think that there in pieces like this, you get that kind of. It, it seems mundane. Some things seem mundane, but these frames of reference and these different experiences that go into everything, they're, they're just amazing that you can get lost in them. Um, and so, yeah, you, yeah. Thank you for bringing this piece to us. <laughs> I was like, oh, once again, I want to say like this piece was a, a trip just cause once again, they, uh, she found like a really good way to like describe him and like the gray areas of him. Once again, I think it was intentional since the album was called Gray. She wanted to find and and we find the best portrait of somebody in the gray. Um, and quick question to you both: um, Have either of you been to Asheville, North Carolina? Nope, I have not been to Asheville, North Carolina. But I was just um, and Tyler, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was watching the Nardwar J Cole interview. And mm-hmm. isn't isn't that studio uh, the name is escaping me? Isn't it in Asheville? It might be. I might have to. I might have to fact check that afterwards. Um, but the reason I ask because I I've been in Asheville multiple times. I my the college I went to was literally thirty minutes outside of it. Um, so uh, so I think to and I, I say that because the way she described uh, Asheville through his eyes as well was so authentic. Like I could literally see the mountains again. And that says, and that once again, like says to her, her talent and her just ability to make that, and and not only take their words, but to make sure it really resonated. Um, or so, just her level of, of description is freaking amazing. Um, and and an, another thing to like your uh, to Joshua to your point to say how Moses, uh, how how she gave that picture of Moses, where it's like you come come form that own idea. It's the way she decided to end the article on that quote. And that quote being, honestly, I'm willing to risk my life, he says. Just imagine how legendary this is would be, how legendary this would be if I die and we get that shot. Discussing like the music video he was shooting um, um, during that time. That is so almost, li- like that's lingering. Like, if I would not read that, if I have not, uh, if this article wasn't older and I know he's obviously alive, it almost like sounds like, he's dead or like he died doing this or it's something it's just it just weighs on you in such a way it was like yo this this portrait that she's painting of this person 
that they care about this art and that it's like just lingers on and just like and unless you form this unless you form your own idea of this and how that statement at the end informs that as well it's just really well done on on her part in every single way I think the the final ribbon on this for me was the song I mentioned for what we were listening to, Bystanders in Space. The name of the live performance album is Live from Black Alicia. Um, so I think that having read this piece that's from two years ago and the references to Asheville and the imagery you're talking about having felt and seen, it's continuing on clearly in this person's way of wanting to make an impact so i really love that today was a fun fun episode yeah, yeah. concurred so uh with that being said uh like to review our articles really quickly um in reverse order of how we prevent presented them um so we have moses sumney is ready to claim his spotlight by rewiwa kamer um, and photography by pari um, pari dukovic um, and that is by Pitchfork. Then we had Ari Lennox and Summer Walker, The Yin and Yang of R&B by <clears throat> Robin Mowat for OK Player. And last but not least, we had the 2022 Grammys postponed due to Omicron, uh, due to o- Omicron wave by Justin Curto for Vulture. Thank you for listening, guys. This has been In Search of Sauce. Oh, and, and always, if you guys have uh, any writers, please send them to us. We always love to like give a spotlight on our writers. Yeah, send us your dope pieces. And if you're a writer, submit yourself. Please do. If you pay us, um, we have a Venmo. No, we don't have a Venmo. But, <laughs> oh, um, how I wish. How I wish. But once again, thank you for listening, guys. Peace out, y'all. Have a good one. This episode of In Search of Source featured Tyler Jones, Elliot Sang, and Josh Morada of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Barsity. Thanks to Chill Breakers for ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element podcast network production. Thanks for Bass, Teacher, Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and Copter Currently episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>